In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. We catch up with Jesus, who is teaching in parables to the crowds by the sea. He relates the parable of the sower, the lamp on the stand, the growing seed, and the mustard seed. And he explains the purpose of the parables to his disciples, and interprets the parable of the sower, describing how the word takes root in those who hear. After dismissing the crowds, we learn that Jesus taught publicly in parables, but explained them privately to his disciples. The question is why? Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, October 26th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. My guest this morning is regular contributor to the show, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor Mullet, and welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be back again. Excellent. So we're going to be in the New Testament for a little while, which is pretty exciting. Uh, We just finished up a two-day session on Jonah, and then we uh, have already gone through the first three chapters of Mark, but we're starting chapter four today. It's kind of nice to be in the New Testament. I, I, you know, I obviously I love the Bible. I love the Old and New Testament, but boy, the the New Testament just resonates a lot, I think, with Christians because, well, we're kind of raised on it. I I don't think we get enough Old Testament, but it's kind of nice to be a little bit uh, where uh, familiar territory, let's put it that way. Yeah, the New Testament is certainly more familiar. And, you know, for the most part, our pastors are preaching on the gospel readings in church on Sundays. So these are the these are the passages we tend to become the most familiar with. And that's a nice opportunity to return to something that no doubt folks have heard and read before. But that also gives us an opportunity to explore some little details that maybe we didn't notice the first time around. Oh, absolutely. And hopefully I can pronounce most of the names, too. That's always something that's useful. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, before we head in, uh, maybe we could start with a word of prayer, and I'd invite you to start us with that prayer. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, by the gifts of your Word and Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to hear and understand that we, like the disciples before us, might receive the secrets of the kingdom of God, that our faith might be strengthened and maintained by your grace, that in the end, according to your goodwill, we might bear fruit and so receive the inheritance that has been laid up for us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are, chapter four. This is actually the second of three sections in Mark in which Jesus is going to be teaching in parables. We, we heard about the last one in chapter three, and so now it, that's why this section begins with the word, again, he began to teach by the sea. I'm just going to go ahead and read this first part, and then we can you can fill in the details or whatever else you want. But let's just get started by ha- hopping right into the Bible. This is going to be chapter 4, verse 1 uh, through verse 9. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that when he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasingly, pardon me, increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." All right, brother. Well, this section, you know, it sort of starts right into the parable of the sower. Uh, something that I know people have heard preached on probably many times, uh, but just sort of starting at the top and even catching us up if you need to, set the stage for us. What's going on? Sure. I think that that word again there is is so important. That's one of those little things that we don't tend to remember because it's not probably the most important word in the little passage. 
Um, but again, he began to teach beside the sea and not, not just again, here's some more figurative language, here's some more parables, but again, he's beside the sea. And I think there's probably a sermon hidden somewhere in there about the word made flesh teaching right beside the water. Oh, um, yeah. He who has ears, let him hear. And um, we do see this very large crowd that, uh, that comes and goes in many different places, not just in Mark, but across the Gospels. And that, I think, is confirmation for us when we kind of piece all these things together, that it is the Word of God that draws people together, um, that, that the Holy Spirit draws people by the Word. Um, Jesus says in John, right, when I am lifted up from the earth in his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. That seems foolish to our world, to even to our own human reason. If we went by human reason alone, the things that Jesus says, that's not the kind of guy you would follow around. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he gets into a boat and uh, sits in it out on the sea, and then the crowd gathers on the shore. And just very practically speaking, um, calm water creates a natural amphitheater um, so that Jesus doesn't need to shout or anything like that, and everyone on the shore, presuming that they're not trying to talk over each other, would be able to hear him pretty well. And as you said, this parable is so very familiar to us. And this sequence that we're going to see here um, in Mark, really chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, uh, and really even the lamp under the basket in the following portion is similar as well, uh, follows exactly the sequence that we find in Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 8 this sequence of he gives the parable and we have this little thing in between about the purpose of the parables. And then Jesus explains the parable of the sower. That sequence is maintained in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that tells us that that sequence is very, very important. We'll see that as we begin to unpack what the parable means a little bit. Um, I appreciated too, that you repeated in verse three, listen, behold, because both of those words are in there. And that, uh, that too tells us, listen to this. It's worth paying attention to. Uh, listen and behold. Um, and of course, you know, the, the parable of the sower, like so many of the parables, makes use of a lot of agricultural imagery. And that's common. And I think we tend to just say, well, that's common at the time, um, because, uh, you know, large farming communities and lots of folks working with their hands for a living and so on. Um, but we see this throughout the Old Testament as well, even when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they don't really have a lot of time necessarily in any one place, um, certainly not consistently anyway, um, where they could become an agricultural sort of people. Uh, these agricultural images are are just so prevalent in the scriptures. And if we, if we start to think about why it really, you back all the way back up to the garden of Eden and kind of remember, you know, this agriculture thing, taking care of creation and learning from it, that God reveals himself to us through it, that we see a little bit of a hint of in Romans chapter one, for example, this is the way God operates. It's not really specific to a time or a place or a culture. This is God speaking through creation to all of his people. Wow, that is such—I'm uh, just sort of kind of thinking about the point you just made, because it's something that had never occurred to me, but even like halfway through you saying it, all the pieces started to fall together in my head. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I also, I guess, would fall into that camp who was like, well, you know, there are a lot of farmers and agricultural folks, and so this would have resonated with them. And I do believe that's true, but you're absolutely right. The the we see images in the scriptures that seem to be kind of universal. Uh, the, the agricultural, or I guess the cultivating the earth and things growing out of it and providence and creation, I mean, that definitely links us back to creation. And, and it also links us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we're as a, a lot of people sometimes need to be reminded, we're, we're not going to be floating around in the clouds playing harps for eternity. We're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, a new earth for which we're going to care for, but of course we'll be confirmed in our righteousness and it won't be a burden. But still, it's it's about God providing for his people through these natural means and through his creation. So yeah, that's an amazing connection. Um, another another uh, common theme, of course, would be like things like marriage and other things that seem to be universal despite the culture because of God's relationship with his people. But 
yeah, that connecting it back to Eden, that's, that's, uh, I think that's insightful. You know, and you mentioned marriage as well. That's another great one. When you see, I mean, one of the best things that I think we can do to help our people see what are, what are the, the images and that, that we really need to grab onto in the Bible, regardless of whether they fit our particular time and place. You know, when I, when I previously served in Indiana, I was in a farm town. I had a lot of farmers in my congregation and things like that just were kind of natural to us. Out here in Wyoming, there's not a whole lot of farming that goes on up in the mountains. So, so the, the culture or the, the immediate context is a little different. But again, like marriage, like agriculture, like so many things, if you look at the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation and kind of see what are the elements of the original creation and what are the elements of the new creation and what do they have in common? They have a tree of life in common. They have a city or a civilization in common where God dwells among his people. They have not marriage in the earthly sense, as we see with Adam and Eve, but marriage in the eternal sense where we as God's people are Christ's bride um, and so on. And those parallels that you find between the beginning and the end, they really do flow all the way through the central books of the scriptures as well. Wow. Well, you know, talk about different times and cultures and, and even, you know, different contexts today. Uh, not too long ago, I preached a sermon and I, I talked about harvest time. And so I, you know, I'm trying to connect. I have a, a large agricultural, uh, uh, I guess, segment in my congregation. And so, you know, I tried to connect. I said, well, you know, um, harvest time and people are harvesting oats and and uh, and alfalfa. And I, I just, I listed off a couple of things that people harvest. And it's just sort of a, a throwaway illustration to kind of connect to the story. And uh, very generously, I was told later that, well, technically we only harvest this during this time and this during that time. You know? <laughs> so it's like my attempt to connect <laughs> to the people kind of derailed them because they're like, well, he's not exactly right about that, but that's fair. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I was just, you know, but, but Jesus, you know, obviously he, he knows, but he also, when he preaches and teaches in these parables, he connects with very generalized things where it can be appreciated. For instance, you don't have to be a farmer uh, or have a degree in advanced agriculture to understand the idea of a sower, sowing seeds. And you don't have to be, you know, because a lot of the folks that were listening to Jesus were not farmers. They may have had a farming community, but just like today, there are plenty of people who lived in town and cities. There are plenty of people who, you know, did all kinds of different uh, vocations. And so I, I think he also keeps it simple enough where it can be, and I'm going to be a little daring here. He keeps it simple enough where it could also be misunderstood. And not that Jesus is wanting to be unclear, but we do have to wrestle with that he who has ears to hear, let him hear eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important, at least for the parable of the sower, he'll become more specific later with other parables. Um, but with the parable of the sower, he never specifies, for example, what sort of plant. He never specifies where exactly and what, what, um, <laughs> what sorts of growing time or how much water it requires or anything like that, which, <laughs> makes, it, which makes it very universally applicable. And of course, when he explains this one for us, we see, well, it's not actually about what kind of plant it might be. It's about the growth and the planting as concepts, as things that God does in our lives and not so much about, you know, all Christians are exactly like wheat, but not like barley. Um, <laughs> that's that's not what we're going for here. Well, even with the mustard seeds, which we're going to come to very shortly, you know, people still today do, well, it's not the smallest of the garden seeds, and they argue over whether it's a weed, et cetera, and we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's dig into the parable itself, though, because, you know, we have quite a few parables to get through today. Maybe I should have spread them out a little bit, but that's okay. We're going to start with this parable of the sower. So I guess, brother, in whatever way you see fit, break it down for us, you know, uh, give us give us a... Uh, that little mini sermon that I'm sure many people have heard, but I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll expand on it. Yeah, that's right. So the sower goes out to sow. That's not what we usually call it anymore. Um, and of course we have so much more agricultural technology that this is no longer how it's done, but we get the image, right? I love um, the Martin Franzman hymn about this particular passage where um, I, I think it's 586 in our hymnal 
I'll preach you the word. Um, don't hold me to that number. I'm not 100% sure of that. Um, but it's definitely called Preach You the Word, and it's definitely Martin Franzman. And he refers to the sower sowing in reckless love, that he is recklessly scattering his seed. And I love that because as agriculturally minded people, we would read this parable and we're like, why is he throwing the seed along the path? That's a waste of good seed. And why would he throw it where he has not made sure that the soil is no longer rocky? That's a waste of seed and so on. Um, but as we'll find out in the explanation, again, there's a lot more going on here than simply a farmer going out to plant because it's that time of year. And we see in each sort of soil, there are four kinds of soil mentioned here, um, that along the path, uh, which does not grow and mature because the birds come along. And then we have some on the rocky ground, presumably soil, but very rocky because there's not much soil. And it springs up, but because it has no depth and therefore no moisture, when the sun rises, it gets too hot and it's scorched away. It has no depth, no foundation to hold on to. The third sort, um, it seems to grow well, except for it's among thorns. And so there are other things competing, agriculturally speaking, for the soil, for the moisture, for the nutrients. And so the thorns tend to be uh, very strong and hardy plants and they choke out whatever exactly this is that's growing. And then finally, we have the good soil and that produces grain. And here in Mark, it's 30, 60 and 100 fold. Um, the other two gospels uh, either have them out of order. I think it's Luke that simply says a hundredfold. Um, but the point, of course, is that the seed falls into good soil. It grows up well. It matures. It produces good fruit. Um, one caution that I would make, and we'll perhaps dig into this a little bit more when we get to the explanation. One caution I would make is that it's very easy for us to read this and think, okay, there's four kinds of soil. So there must be four kinds of people because we know this isn't finally about farming. It's about Christians in the kingdom of God. So if there's four kinds of people in the world, I need to make sure that I'm the last one, that I'm the good soil. Um, and again, we'll unpack this a little bit more when we get to the explanation, but there are not actually four kinds of people in this parable. Um, just as there are really not four kinds of people in the world, period. Um, from God's perspective, when we're talking about these sorts of things, there are really two kinds of people. Um, and we see this finally at the end when we separate the sheep from the goats and no one's left in between. Um, it is a great gift to us and also a great tragedy and impetus for mission work, I think, that there are, at the end of the day, only believers and unbelievers. Well, and we will get to that a little more when we get to Jesus's explanation. But the next part in the narrative, of course, is that uh, verse 9, which is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to read that through verse 12. So Jesus, con or, well, Mark continues, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. One more verse. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, Jesus is going to go in to explain it to his disciples out of his mercy. But in this section right here, though, um, this is heavy, right? I mean, this this quotation that Jesus makes, um, which is, uh, you know, from the Old Testament, it's, it's I mean, it's heavy. It, it, we could understand this to say, as some of our Calvinist brothers do, that uh, God's already decided who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, and the whole purpose of parables is just to sort them out. But that's not the case. Help us understand. Yeah, this is, I mean, as you said, this is heavy stuff. And, and I really do think this is the key to the whole thing. This helps us to understand, even as uh, the little uh, paragraph heading tells us, this is the purpose of the parables. Uh, why, why is he doing this? Um, and, and I think by including the, uh, this little, this is a quotation. 
in verse 12, so that, and then the quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, and that is included in Matthew's telling of this and in Luke's. Mark adds a little bit, lest they should turn and be forgiven, which is to say, um, I mean, it kind of explains a little bit um, of what does this mean from Isaiah 6? What does it mean that they might hear but not understand? What does it mean that they see and not perceive? Well, it means that they won't repent and return to God and so receive the forgiveness of sins. Verse 13 is unique to Mark, and I think this is very helpful as well. How will you understand all the parables if you don't get this one? And I think that tells us that the parable of the sower, according to Jesus' wisdom, is sort of the prototype, if you will. He's going to tell us this parable and explain it for us to give us some insight into how to interpret the rest of them. Because he doesn't explain every single parable. Um, there's one or two others that he gives a little bit of an explanation for. This is far and away the most complete parable and explanation that is recorded for us in the Gospels. And I do think keeping that in the back of our minds that the parable of the sower really is kind of the prototypical parable, if you will, um, helps us kind of grab onto a little bit more. And what we'll see, in fact, is that the subject matter of the parable of the sower uh, is also in some sense prototypical. It's an illustration not only of how to interpret a parable, but it's also an illustration of this purpose of parables that Jesus pulls from Isaiah chapter 6. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that obviously pairs with verse 12, that they may indeed hear, but not understand. And so what Jesus is saying here is for believers, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. I think we can infer that these are those who believe what Jesus is telling them and follow him to you, to believers, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, for those who do not yet have faith, they may see, but not perceive. They may hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so the kind of the, the crucial thing here is because, as you said, we don't want to fall into Calvin's error here, where we believe that God has chosen from eternity some for heaven and some for hell, but rather to understand that the scriptures and in this little microcosm of them, if you will, here in the parable of the sower, the parables are closed to human reason. We cannot understand the Bible. We cannot understand God's word. We cannot understand the parables without the gift of the Holy Spirit mm. that we can see it, but we're not going to quite perceive it. We can hear the words, but not quite understand them. I think the, the bigger underlying point here, and we'll see this a little bit more in the explanation where we have all these different things that come along and steal that saving word away from people, that apart from the word and the spirit who enlightens us, we cannot attain to these things by human reason. When he says to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, I think that's a reference directly to the Holy Spirit. To you has been given the Holy Spirit so that you can understand these things, so that these images make sense to you. Because as you said, when we begin to put too much human reason in and even on top of and uh, instead of the scriptures, you know, that's really ultimately the error that Calvin falls into when it comes to what is called double predestination, right? That the Bible tells us over and over, those who are saved, God has chosen. The Bible doesn't really go any further than that. Our human reason finds it very easy to fill in that blank and say, well, if God chose some for salvation, then he must have chosen, but he doesn't say that. Um, and so there, there is a certain amount of discipline here as well for our human reason to, to only uh, say those things that God has said. But I, I do think that's kind of the underlying point here, that, that you know there is a warning for Christians that the word of God can be rejected. And there's a warning here as well of the danger of trying to logic our way into the kingdom. That's not how salvation is attained. Salvation is given as a free gift because of Jesus Christ and received by us in faith alone.
I think what you're saying is incredibly important. One of the things that I've frequently told people, and sometimes this meets with a little bit of uh, consternation, and that is, ultimately, the Scriptures, the Bible, is for believers. Now, it's not as though you can't—you could pass out a million Bibles— right, and pass out a million copies of the Word of God, our, our sponsor does, right, Lutheran Heritage Foundation, but without the Holy Spirit moving, it's not like the Holy Spirit can't work through the written Word, but ultimately, just someone who says, well, I've read through the Bible doesn't indicate that they have the, the ability to understand or apprehend the message by faith. And I hear you saying that, that he's saying, you know, you're not going to understand any of these parables except that it, be, it has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit or by my Father who is in heaven, to you know, borrow a phrase from when Peter confessed him to be the Christ. So, so yes, we, we read the Word of God, we, we, we dig into the Word of God, but the Bible, worship, and everything, those things are for believers. And it seems pretty clear that the primary way by which we make new believers is not just passing out Bibles, but going and building relationships with people and pointing them to Jesus so that the Holy Spirit can work in their hearts and so that they can um, receive these secrets to the kingdom of God. I think this term secret can be overblown. I think it's much more simple <laughs> than just some sort of esoteric Gnostic secret. I think it's just simply, this is not known by some, it is known by you. And if I'm hearing you correctly, and the reason why is because the Holy Spirit is revealing it to you. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's why, again, right, that's why, um, why this whole thing now finally makes a little bit of sense, I think. You know, all of the kinds of soil receive the seed. They right. all hear, even, when we get to the explanation, Jesus will say about all four of them, they all hear the word. And I think that's kind of a suggestion uh, kind of on two levels. The first one is that we we could infer, I don't know if it's quite there, that they're all Christians and some of them fall away for various reasons. Um, but I think even more than that, we can certainly say that simply hearing the word or simply reading the Bible does not by itself make someone into a Christian. Can the Holy Spirit work that way? Absolutely. And he promises to work according to the word. That's Isaiah 55. But just handing someone a Bible is not necessarily going to automatically make them a Christian. The Holy Spirit could choose to work by that, and we certainly pray that he does. But when we're talking about outreach, give the Bible and then extend the invitation. Give the Bible, give the food, give the donation to charity and extend the invitation, just like we see with Philip and Nathaniel in the opening chapters of John's Gospel. What is the biblical model? of outreach and making disciples come and see come and, come see. and see well folks i want you to stay and see because we're going to keep on going when we come back from our break so don't go anywhere when we return uh, pastor and i will keep on going and we'll hear jesus's explanation of this parable see you on the other side These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Thanks for taking the time to be in God's Word with us today. Remember, if you have questions or comments about today's show, you can send me a message at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Well, let's get right back into the text, and we uh, just finished talking a little bit about the purpose of parables 
Now I think it's prudent that we just go right into Jesus's explanation of this parable that he mercifully gives us and his disciples, and then we're going to have uh, three short parables to then, I guess, unpack according to this prototype. It's, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer of parables, if I'm hearing my guess correctly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the only parable, but it's going to help us uh, understand other parables. Well, here we go, starting with verse 13. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. All right, so that's the end of the text. So, I mean, I, I will have to say that as he splits them up into these four different types of soils, and you've already cautioned us about not reading into it four different kinds of people, I definitely see, I guess, four very familiar experiences that that I've witnessed. I, I've seen people who for whom the the word just means nothing. I've seen people for whom they are like uber zealous Christians, but then, you know, it just sort of dies away, especially if things get tough. And I've seen people who, you know, are are eager for the word, but then just you know, they chase after the things of the world and they get caught up in life and they fall away. So um I guess help us understand what what Jesus is saying here. If it's not four different kinds of people, um, what's the better way to understand it? Yeah, I think the kind of the better heading to give it, if you will, is not four kinds of people, um, but rather, again, as I said before, you really have two kinds of people, those who hold on to the word and those who don't. And under that, um, for Christians, right? Because what we're, what we're going to try not to do here is accuse Christians of immediately having the word taken away from them just because they haven't shown up in church for a little while. And we're not going to say that, well, as soon as you uh, endure some tribulation or persecution, uh, that you've immediately lost the faith. That's not what we quite mean okay. to say. But as we said, parables are primarily for a Christian audience. And so what Jesus is doing here by this parable is demonstrating the different dangers that Christians can face when it comes to threats to the faith or things that will try to take the word away from them or take them away from the word, as the case may be. And so what are we fighting against, Christians, as we do our battle on this side of eternity? We do our fight against Satan, who immediately comes and takes away the word. And we have uh, those who, when we do fight against tribulation or persecution, which arises on account of the word. And I think that's another good little hint that we are talking primarily to Christians here, that it's not tribulation or persecution just in the world, but specifically on account of the word, and then they fall away. And those among the thorns, and I think this one is probably the most common that all of us struggle with, um, not necessarily tribulation or persecution, and not generally speaking, a full frontal attack by Satan himself, um, but rather this last one in verse 19, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And I think that one's most easily understood when you kind of consider the last time that you didn't get to church for a few weeks in a row, or the last time that you know someone who didn't make it. And the most common thing is, well, we just got kind of busy and we lost track of things. And that you know, it sounds innocent enough. And, and to be totally honest with you, I, I try really hard as a pastor not to hold that against folks because it does happen. Um, it's simply a matter of, of there are so many things going on in our lives and in the world around us. It is, a, it is a busy place. We live in busy times, if you will. And, and when the word of God and the worship and the fellowship of God's people 
is one among many other things competing for our time and attention, it is easy for our flesh to reshuffle those priorities in, shall we say, a less than God-pleasing way. Um, so I think much less about there are three different kinds of people who reject the word, and instead there are three different scenarios here presented to Christians that they should be on the lookout for. Three different ways that uh, it this might be Luther, and I'm careful to say that because things get attributed to Luther all the time that he never actually said. Right. Um, but sometimes I've seen this interpreted as what we see here really is the devil and the world and our sinful nature that mm. we're fighting against in these three kind of warnings or these three situations that might threaten to take God's word away from us. And doing battle against Satan and then the world would be tribulation and persecution, and then our own sinful flesh, the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. Um, doing battle against sort of that unholy trinity, if you will, um, we then have the ideal, those that are so sown on the good soil. We hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Well, I think it might be a good time for us to move on into the next ones, because we do have three parables to, uh, I guess, interpret based on what we've learned so far. Uh, if, if that's all right with you, you ready to go? Yeah, let's go. All right, verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, that's the end of verse 25. So uh, this is uh, everything Mark has to say on this lamp under the basket. Uh so it kind of makes sense at the beginning, but you have to admit, as you get to the end, it starts like, okay, no, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you know, earlier it's, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear so that some people won't repent. That's the misunderstanding. And, and then now we have like, okay, so people who are blessed will get more and people who aren't blessed, they'll have that taken away. Obviously, that's not what it means. But, but you know, there's some misunderstandings that could come from this. Yeah, and I think this is one of those places where, I really don't like where the paragraph heading is because um, I think we just have this tendency as we're glancing through the Bible and reading little passages to see a paragraph heading and assume that that means we're now talking about something completely different. Hmm. And I don't think we are. I think if we take 21, 22, and 23, along with verse 20 from the previous one, we can start to see a continuity between all of these parables and start to see why is it exactly that Jesus tells them in the order that he tells them in. So the ones sown on good soil, which is to say Christians who hear the word, God works in them, they bear fruit 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? We're really kind of talking about the same thing. Is a Christian in whom God is working both in faith and working good works of love toward the neighbor to be brought indoors and hidden under the bed? No, that's not what a lamp is for. That's not what a Christian bearing good fruit is for. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, which if we want to, um, to go entirely the spiritual route that we began to go in, in the explanation of the sower parable, nothing is hidden, which is to say, Nothing is hidden in the heart. Faith is not hidden in the heart so that it stays there in the heart. It's hidden there in the heart so that it might be made manifest in good works of service to God and to the neighbor. Nothing is secret, which is to say, earlier we said the secret of the kingdom might be hinting at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not hidden except to come to light, which is to say there's nothing hidden except for Christ to be revealed thereby. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which I think does tell us that it goes with the previous one, because we don't hear that phrase again in the rest of this portion, um, that if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. It doesn't, it doesn't get attached to any of the other parables in this section of Mark. 
And so I think if we understand a bigger flow here of these parables, that what Jesus is talking about is, look, Christians, the word of God has been sown in your heart by God himself. He works through the Holy Spirit to produce that good fruit. Now, there are dangers in this world and with the devil and with your, even your own sinful flesh that will try to snatch that word away from you. But if you hold on to it by God's grace, doing battle against the things of this life and holding fast the word, bearing fruit by the Spirit's work in you, you will be the lamp that shines the light in dark places. You will be that thing that makes manifest the things which are hidden. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you talk about the divisions, and, boy, they do cause us a lot of trouble sometimes, the versification of the Bible even, and we kind of start to see the Bible as if these little independent chunks just sort of sent from heaven. And so, yeah, context is always, always key. And that, and that makes sense, too, because he's trying to fully illustrate this idea that, you know, that he's revealing these things for a purpose, too. The purpose isn't just to just for you to know so that you can walk around and feel puffed up with your secret knowledge, but rather for you to go and make other people aware, right? God does his electing work through us, I think is a pretty fair thing to say. And I think that speaks to our, our us today. I mean, there's so many people who they come to church and of course they desire other people to come to church. Uh, they desire other people to be in the word and receive the gifts of God. But you know, how often are we acting like that? How often are we just sort of hiding our lamp under a basket instead of going out and proclaiming um, the what what Christ has revealed to us, sharing it with others. Yeah, I mean, there's a there are a few um, old Sunday school songs that get stuck in my head from time to time, and they're not they're not perfect and they're not 100 theologically sound and all that, but they do always have little elements of truth. I think here, especially of you know this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? right? And that's not a perfectly unproblematic song, but, <laughs> right. but that there is an element of truth there. Another old favorite, of course, is they'll know we are Christians by our love. Well, that's not a perfect way to say that, but there is an element of truth there. We so frequently remember that God works through means to deliver forgiveness and life and salvation to us as Christians in the pews. And then we tend to forget that we are the means by which God shows forth his love in the world. Um, that God can and does daily work through us for the good of our neighbor. Uh, and that's, I think, is kind of what's hinted at in the second little portion of this paragraph, verses 24 and 25, because it's, it's odd. Um, we've, we've shifted away from, it seems like anyway, we've shifted away from bearing fruit and shining our light in the darkness and so on. And now we're on to something that sounds a little bit like karma. And, and we don't, we don't obviously accept the tenets of that, that line of thinking, of that karma system. Um, Jesus refutes that very clearly, for example, in John chapter 9 with the man born blind, uh, just in the first few verses, if, if someone wanted to chase that down. Um, but what, what we're seeing here is, I think, just pretty simple, practical worldly advice. And when we tack that on to the end of when we're talking about Christians bearing fruit, we're talking about Christians shining our light into the darkness of the world, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Which is to say, Christians, pretty simply, if you want to win people for the kingdom, to borrow a phrase from a non-Lutheran source, if you want to win people for the kingdom, coming in with all guns blazing is probably not going to be the most effective method. If you show the love of God to the world, the love and the generosity and the forgiveness and the mercy will come back to you, or it won't. And frankly, that's kind of one of the points that's made by the parable of the sower as well, that the word can be rejected, that there really are two kind of reactions to the word of God. It is divisive. Jesus makes that point over and over again. Um, so it sounds a little bit like karma, but I think it's really just kind of good advice for our dealings out there in the world. And even though we don't accept the concept of karma, I think it would be wrong to say that experience does not bear out this idea that, you know, when we strive with the Spirit's help to keep the commandments, to show God's love in the world, that even if the world doesn't bless us, God certainly does. Uh, and to the one who has, more will be given. 
And I think, I think we can read behind the lines a little bit and find some faith in there as well. I, uh, in fact, just explained, uh, we just talked about this passage in Bible study uh, the other day. We were reading from Luke, but it was this same little passage. And we said, the one who has, more will be given. That's often used in the secular realm, referring to responsibility. If you have responsibility, more responsibilities tend to be given to you. And I think we can see that in our context as Christians within the household of faith, that when we are bringing in new people by bearing fruit, by shining our light into dark places, those who have been here have a certain amount of responsibility to those who are new in kind of uh, showing them the ropes is kind of a crass way of putting it. But that is kind of what I mean, um, to, to kind of welcome those people into our midst, those who are more mature in the faith, who have more of it, if you will, and I don't mean quantity here, we really are talking just about maturity. Um, the one who has that more mature faith, uh, to you, more will be given, but with that comes, of course, more responsibility. And of course, as we see throughout the scriptures, and this is a very crude way of saying it, um, but if you're not meeting the devil and the world and your own sinful flesh, if you're not meeting resistance for the way that you're living your Christian life by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're not meeting resistance and doing daily battle, you might be doing it wrong. There is something to say about that. You know, some people can take that too far, too. You know, they feel like they have to go and seek out persecution for righteousness' sake. But but what you're saying is absolutely true. You know, it, it, a lot of parishioners will come to me and other people, and they'll just say, well, X, Y, and Z church, which we know don't doesn't believe the right things, doesn't teach the right things, they got 20,000 people showing up. Well, they're not meeting any resistance for that. Why would Why would Satan yeah. stand in the way of that? But for those who, of course, experience some struggles, not that we, um, you know, not that we relish our struggles, but but the Bible does give us an example that when we meet with resistance, we remind we are reminded of what Christ went through for us. And, and you talked about karma, and naturally, we don't believe in karma, but even Christ says you reap what you sow, and it's a it's a common understanding that you know, well, when you do things according to God's will. On the one hand, they'll tend to go better because God will, because you're just not, not that God's throwing you an extra bone for doing the right thing, but, but because that's how he set it up, it's supposed to go better that way. Of course, then at the same time, you're going to sometimes meet with more resistance too. So it's very much a, very much a, a paradox, the Christian life. Well, I kind of wonder if there's, there might be a way to talk about this. And this is, this is me thinking on the fly. So, uh, good luck, I guess. Um, but I kind of wonder if there might be a, a helpful way to talk about, you know, in, in worldly things on this side of heaven, the human experience does kind of bear out this idea that we refer to as karma. Um, and Jesus says, you know, you reap what you sow and so on. And I think so often that the difficulty is because we know that karma is the wrong understanding of the way that God deals with people then we tend to apply that as a blanket statement to the way that we deal with one another as well. And I, I wonder if a, just a tiny bit of separation there might be helpful, that there is no such thing as divine karma, right. um, that you have committed some sin like Job, and so you must be being punished specifically for this one specific sin, Job, even if you don't know what it is. Um, but to recognize that in our earthly dealings with one another, there is a certain amount of, of truth in that, that, you know, if you're nice to people, people are, you know, will tend to be nice to you in return. If you're generous to people, people will tend to be generous to you in return. And I don't think saying both of those things at the same time is, is going any further or saying something that the scriptures haven't said. No. And in fact, I would say the whole concept of karma is simply a ancient people's attempts to explain okay. something that's obviously revealed to us in scripture even i mean you know the idea that you know good begets good and bad and evil begets evil and and, and so i just think that it's a misunderstanding if nothing else if we can put the really good construction on false doctrine we can say that it's people who are trying to understand the world without christ and so it makes sense to them okay obviously the gods the universe or whatever is punishing me well that's not true but it also makes sense from just a purely uh, human perspective without the revelation of God's truth. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we see that with, with all kinds of false doctrines oh, yeah. and misunderstood ways of thinking in the world. Well, let's head in. We only have about 10 minutes left in the program, and I definitely want to talk about these two next parables. These are two kingdom parables, very short. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So it's the end of 29, parable of the seed growing. I, I think it's pretty straightforward. I'm interested to hear your take on it, but this is another one of those things where the specifics of it, you can get bogged down if you try to dissect it in such a way that, and here's what I mean. Well, here we are in 2023. We actually do have some pretty good ideas of why this all works. <laughs> we, we've, we've, we've explored God's kingdom, and we can explain in many ways how, how, a, how a seed turns into a, to a, a shoot, which turns into a plant. Uh, and people might look at that and say, oh, look, the Bible's wrong. They say we don't know how, but we do know how. Obviously, that's missing the point. But I did want to bring that up because I literally heard that from those who looked to disparage the Bible. Yeah, that's important, right? And and the kingdom of God is as if, right? And I think that's the key, um, right. that it, it continues in the agricultural theme. I think that does tie us into, again, you know, I think, um, I do think the parables are in the sequence that they're in on purpose. Um, we've talked about Christians and the word being planted in their hearts. We've talked about the fruit that is born by that word and spirit working in them. We've talked about the dangers. Let's zoom out a little bit. How does this work in the big picture? Well, it is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, which is the same as the sower. But now we're thinking big picture. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how, which is simply this. When we, I think, as Christians are sharing the word, it, it does its work. Isaiah 55, it goes where it wishes, and it does its work, and it returns not empty. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. I found the first time I read through this uh, in preparation for our time together here, my first thought was actually of pastors. Hmm. That we we go and we scatter the seed on the ground and we sleep and we rise night and day and the word of God has its effects and reaps its harvest in ways that we could not even begin to imagine. That, you know, being a pastor is is obviously so rewarding. And yet it is frustrating, I think, in kind of a unique way, because so many of the things, so many of the fruits of our labor, if you will, are things that we never get to see. And that can be discouraging from time to time. What this is, I think, is a reminder for pastors, for Christians, that the, the word of God and the kingdom of God do their work in ways that we cannot see or understand. I'm reminded of what Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And that the kingdom of God Though he might work through us to sow that seed, though he might work through us to do the watering from time to time, it is still very much in God's hands, and he will take care of things. And then we have that in verse 29, of course. We have that. That's a very common image of the end times uh, of the last day when the harvest has come. And uh, all of, uh, to borrow from a different parable that we're not talking about today, when all of the weeds and the wheat are taken up together, because the end has come, the time is at hand, and then they're separated, uh, some for salvation and some for condemnation. Well, moving right along, although I could definitely dig into that a lot more, and I know we could, but we're going to hit the parable of the mustard seed. Now, with this, you know, I, I read a note, and I think this is an interesting insight. One commentator said that where Jesus is preaching and teaching here by the sea— these mustard plants, which can get very tall, would have grown naturally around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's very possible that as we read this next one, Jesus is literally looking around, thinking about hmm. what can I talk, what can I, what can I use next as an example? So let's hear it with that context, because I think it makes it interesting. Uh, verse 30 through the end of the chapter, here we go. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. 
Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. All right. Well, that isn't in the chapter. I'm sorry. That just ends our section of the chapter. Next happens. The next thing that happens is Jesus calming the storm. That's going to be for tomorrow. But here we go. The parable of the mustard seed. Again, people, well, there are smaller seeds on the earth. So Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Once again, missing the point. Yeah, of course. Um, I think this, this one's a little odd because I think when we talk about a mustard seed in the gospels, we almost think, we almost always think of faith being described as a mustard seed. But here it's the kingdom of God being compared to the mustard seed. Um, and that fits in very well with the previous one, of course, uh, that previous little parable. And so what we're seeing here, if we, if we think a little bit bigger picture again, is uh, the point is not that the mustard seed is in fact the smallest of all the seeds across the board, but that something so small can produce such a large mustard tree. Um, you know, and I mean, mustard trees, depending on what kind of mustard you're growing, can be six, eight, 10 feet tall um, and from a very, very small little seed, which is to say, don't judge by appearances, right? When we look at the kingdom of God from the world's perspective, uh, even Paul says, right, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, which is to say unbelievers in the world. The kingdom of God, this whole Christianity thing, looks kind of silly from the outside looking in. We do some odd things as Christians from the world's perspective. Uh, and yet, this little tiny seed that seems so insignificant produces the largest of the trees in all the garden. And I don't think that garden word is on accident either. Uh, because I think when we're talking about with verse 29 in the previous parable, when the grain is ripe, we put the sickle to it because the harvest has come. I think we can start thinking end times a little bit here. And again, I do think they're in the order they're in for a reason. If we hear the parable of the mustard seed in the context of the end is near or even the end is at hand, what's the kingdom of God look like? Well, it's like a mustard seed because it looked really insignificant by earthly standards. But look at it now. It is the largest tree in all the garden, a reference to both the very beginning and the very end. And it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And the birds of the air here, I think, are pretty clearly a reference to believers from all nations. This particularly goes with a prophecy that's in Ezekiel 17, um, where the reign of the Messiah is compared to a great tree um, in, in, in the shadow of that, if I'm remembering Ezekiel correctly, uh, I think it's 17, Ezekiel 17, um, where the Messiah's rule is this great tree and birds of every sort will nest in its shade. Um, that, that again, that's exactly what this is, um, this kingdom of God that goes against all earthly or human expectation. And that fits in so well with what you've said and we've said so many times already that human reason by itself does not reveal the kingdom of God. It has to be the work of God in our hearts by the power of word and spirit. And we see that again in these concluding verses. He speaks in parables as they're able to hear. He did not speak to them without a parable, going back to the purpose, right? The purpose is in fact for it to be revealed, not by human reason, but by the Holy Spirit. And privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit, they can receive what he gives. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it because we are right up against our time. But I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. As always, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I know you'll be back for another chapter in Mark, so I look forward to that. And folks, tomorrow, Jesus and his disciples embark on a journey by boat across the Sea of Galilee. You already heard me say it. It's the calming of the storm. Then, once they reach the other side, well, they are met by a man possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus casts out the demons. These events serve as a compelling testament to Jesus' divinity, but also his mission to bring healing and restoration to the broken. So, until then, may God's, and God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.